Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something else. So my iPhone is on voice memos and it's got this little... Lovely. It's uh, called my under the duvet ADR mic. There you go. With me. That's exactly it. So I'm pre- pretending I'm not technological, but actually, guys, You're all I've over inserted it. this baby a million times. It's... So <laughs> I know what I'm doing. It's very dinky, isn't it? <laughs> it's good, isn't it? And it felt like, you know, it does that. It goes oh. in your bag and it goes straight in your voice notes, David. It's really there good. There you go. Is it recording now? No, not yet. Okay. Let's do that. Let's do that. And then it will really will be working. <laughs> recording. Brilliant. David Tennant does a podcast with Chris Jumbo. How are you coping, the three of you? Yeah. There's been there's been a lot, David. A lot. Like I feel like when the world was so different when we shot Deadwater Fell and I went Mm. back to New York. It was just there's all kinds of things we talked about that like I just feel like another century. And um, we'd already made a decision to move back to the UK from New York. Right. So we knew what month we were moving. It just so happened. We we decided it a year before, but it just so happened to coincide with the beginning of lockdown. Yeah. So it's just been so much stuff, like the show getting shut down two episodes before the end. Yeah. Them saying it was going to be three weeks, then not picking it up. And then I was moving anyway. Yeah. And then a contain- ship- shipping container of our life, trying to make its way over here, moving into a new place, but everything being socially distanced, quarantining. Yeah. It's all been like mad. It feels like we talk- so we've come back, but it's like we haven't come back. Yeah. Because are we really Well, because you've come to this sort of Neverland, this weird yeah. kind of yeah. hiatus world. Yeah. yeah. That being said, so happy to be home. I feel very lucky to have got out of New York when we did. Did you have to leave slightly earlier than you'd planned to get out? No, we ended up leaving the same day. Okay. Um, yeah. And there were another two actors on my British Airways flight with their families. Oh, right. Leaving. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So we were all kind of like, what, you know, what show did you get shut down? Are you on yeah. Broadway? Oh, that got shut down. Are you just, what are you doing? What did you leave? What did you take? It was very Handmaiden's Tale. Yeah, very quite. Very dramatic. So for the last four years, you've spent a lot of time in New York um, playing Luca Quinn in The Good Wife and then The Good Fight, the follow-up. And you finally decided to move on. And just as as you're about to film your departure, like you've been saying, the whole thing gets shut down. There's a global (laughs) pandemic. How much did you have left to shoot? We had, we were in the middle of episode seven and we had 10 episodes to shoot. Right. And did you have scripts? Did you know what was planned for you? Yes, I knew my plan, my planned exit. I was exiting, as was Delroy Lindo's character. Right, right. And so we were both exiting, we both knew what was going on. Um, It required a little bit of filming in Miami, pretending it was the Caribbean. Oh, nice. And uh, which we'd done a bit of. Yeah. But we, the the, the rumour, the rumour of shutdown in a week began in the morning. 
And then oh. four hours later, in the middle of a turnaround, they just called everyone to set. Wow. Go home. Wow. Yeah. Which is weird because like that scene will never, you know, I haven't actually sat down to watch any of the seven because I kind of feel a funny way about it. So were seven complete? No. Not even? No. I think so, they've made, they've been able to edit it so okay. that seven is the last episode because they released all seven in the US. Oh, they have, right. But it has no but sense of a finale or a... No, or we a, had tons of scenes we hadn't shot. Right. Which, of course, like, as an actor, you're like, but, you know, now my scene two and seven don't connect. Yeah, you know, of course I, you are, yeah. But I was going to play five, so big. Yeah. Know? And they just had to kind of edit it together, which everybody says is great, but it's weird to think what's missing. Well, I'm very unsatisfying for you at the end of this extraordinary journey, playing this part in this amazing series. I mean, it's been a really big part of your life. You, you kind of want to be able to finish it, right? Yeah, I mean, I... Honestly, it was very emotional for me because I haven't played um, one character on screen for that long ever. Mm. I was always a jumping actor just in terms of, you know, a play and then a mini series and then a play. And I, and I always liked it that way. Yeah. I liked to change and, and learn and change and move. And I took the job on Good Wife because I was just, I loved the show so much and I didn't know it was going to continue. And the next thing I knew I'd been playing her for four or five years and I loved her and mm. I'd made her and I was I was very connected to her and I knew I was coming to the end of our journey together. So I'd begun to do all of my, you know, you have your funny processes for letting go bit by bit, just so you mm. kind of look after yourself, which I know sounds weird to normal people. They just like take off your wig <laughs> and go home. But um, I get very, I'm so emotionally attached to them and I feel like it, I'm abandoning them if I just take my wig off and go. Yeah. So I was gradually going through this process of like, I've, you know, in my office, that's been my desk always. Those have been my drawers always. Those have been my file. I know where all my files are kept. I know where all the cases are kept. I have pens I've been using for years. I have fought. So I was just gradually. This is all your character. You, you mean your Sorry, character's yes, not desk. me. Yeah. <laughs> Luca's desk. No, yeah. but they're, you know, you're, they're very linked, of course. So I was gradually like going through and going, okay, last time I'm using this and. I'd written her a couple of letters that I was going to leave in the desk for her when I left. Wow. And um, getting quite emotional talking about it now. Sure. So I was all planned. I'm a planner. I'm a planner. Yeah. And then, yeah, they just shut it down. Let's go home. So do you feel robbed of your of your mourning process? Of your... Because you, uh, you didn't all get to stand around on the last day and have a cry or say goodbye or... No. Um, I think I was lucky that so after three or four weeks when they knew that nothing was going to happen, they knew I was leaving the country and yeah. they let me go in alone to the studio to get my stuff in the dressing room. But I said, can I please have an hour on the stage? So I just went to the office, left the letters. Oh my God, I'm getting so upset. This is so ridiculous. No, it's, it's understandable. <laughs> it's a bit of a big deal. Um, I was really lucky I got to walk and I, I went to the where I did my first scene with Juliana. I went to the first courtroom I worked in I went you know yeah I just said goodbye to everything so yeah. I felt like I, I felt like I got it I wasn't that bothered about like everyone stand around and clap because jumbo and big speech and would I have liked my flowers and chocolates yes I would have liked my flowers and chocolates Wait, they haven't sent them anyway no they have not sent my Dear flowers God. and chocolates but I get it it's, it's you know There's people a lot have had on. bigger fish to fry yeah uh, but yeah so I, I got I got to say goodbye like that but it was I wasn't expecting it to hit me that hard well, I bet it's been five years of your life, right? Yeah. 
And when I started, I wasn't, you know, I just got married. He yeah, was living quite. still in London. I wasn't living in New York. I didn't have a bait. I've been through so much there. Mm. So they do, as you say, they have got another season coming. So you, you mm-hmm. had to make an active decision not to be part of that. How, how big a wrestle was that? It was hard. It was really hard. Um, I talked to a few different people. Well, I think we talked about we did it. Talk I think about I asked it, your yeah. advice about it. I talked to people that I respected and that had been in that situation or had had that opportunity. Because it's hard. You spend so much of your early career, um, you know, trying not to be skint, trying to become more known, trying to get in the position where you can make decisions about the work you do. And so a job like this was a dream for me and so amazing. But I just felt like I had done everything I could do with her. And it was beginning to niggle me, like I was getting the little voice at the back of my head that was getting a bit itchy mm. about, you know, well, what now? You know, you're 35 this year. Not not that it's an age thing, but okay, fine. Now we've done what we can do. You've never been someone that just treads water. You have to kind of make yourself available in order to move forward. So it was a wrestle business versus art. I've got a toddler. I've got a family. You know, I'm trying to build a life for myself, but... My decisions have never been money decisions because that's not what always mm. makes me happy. So I just had to go with my gut on it, I think. Do you think familiarity is an enemy to creativity then? I wouldn't say familiarity, but comfort. Okay. I think, I'm not going to pretend I made this quote up. I remember reading it or hearing it somewhere, that you should always, if you're a creative, you should always feel slightly uncomfortable in yeah. some way. Like director you haven't worked with, actors you haven't worked with, place you haven't worked in, stunt you haven't done, you know, piece of theatre where you've never done that era, accent you've never done, because it somehow unlocks some stuff in you, gives you some new stuff. Um, And yeah, I think I'd become comfortable Mm. in a lovely way. Sure. But I know that's not how I tick. Right. Interesting. Because, of course, one of the things you were leaving to move on to was to play Hamlet at the Young Vic in London, which you're not immediately obvious casting for. Uh, You know, What do you mean? Well, (laughs) it's it's a part that has historically tended to be played by a male actor. But was that what you were looking for? Something completely different, something? Or is it just about that part in particular? Because Hamlet is often seen as the real test of an actor's metal, isn't it? Seen as like, yeah. like that Olympic event yeah. for, for actors. I don't, I don't know about you, but Shakespeare's a weird one, isn't it? Because everyone has their different relationships with it. Yes. And I kind of can't... It's like we do acting and we do theatre and we do TV and we do movies and whatever. And then you do Shakespeare. It's like, it's like a different... I don't know if it's just not a genre, that's the wrong word. Can't think of the right word. It's like a different game of tennis yeah and by that i mean your relationship with it starts early in your life sometimes it's a positive that spins to and it starts in school it starts early you have this relationship with it and mine began negative very young and then i kind of grasped how brilliant it was and then i felt empowered by it and i have a very emotional link with it mm. so then over the years getting to play you know, smaller parts and then bigger parts and then bigger parts and then finally getting to play Mark Antony, which was the... the in Julius Caesar, time, of course. In yeah. Julius Caesar, yeah. Um, I was, you know, I was building relationships with not just Shakespeare and the works, but how to do the work. But in this 
production, I mean, maybe you don't know the answer to all these questions yet, but is the idea that you will be playing, you, Kush, will be playing a, a man or Hamlet will be a female or can you be a bit more nebulous about it than that? No, I'm playing him as a him. You are, okay. The way The way I got there was that one of the things that so fascinated me about Hamlet was when it was written and where he was at in his life when he wrote it and that it was on that cusp of the new century, Mm. which I didn't think was a coincidence when you look at how different Hamlet is to the other men that he's written. Right. And then that was always making me think about what we've been going through the last 10 years with these big, big important conversations about gender and identity and whether people do want to be labelled, people don't want to be labelled, and what masculinity actually means. And it feels like we're right in the middle of that right now Um, in terms of I no longer know what that word means and I don't think anybody else does either and I think that's a good thing. So I wanted to try to find the new man of now because I've got nieces and nephews that are kind of hitting their teens and I watch them and I listen to them and I talk to them and the way that they see the world and masculine and feminine is just completely different to how I viewed the world when I was their age. And I'm only like, you know, yeah. 15 years older than them or something. Yeah. So I hadn't, you know, I hadn't answered all those questions yet, but I had decided that he would be him and he would be the new man that was almost born too early, didn't quite couldn't fit into the state of Denmark and what was going on. Interesting. And that that then gives an extra sort of piquancy to the fact that there's perhaps Good a word. woman Good playing... Good word, David. Thank you very much. The, the, a woman playing that role. That's, that, uh, that sounds fascinating. Some people haven't had a great reaction to me playing... Have choosing not? to play Hamlet at all. Uh, I'd say defensiveness. Okay. Like what? Why do women feel like they need to play all the men's parts? Okay. Uh, this isn't this going to be like isn't this more about you being of colour and a woman than about the actual play Hamlet right Um, are there any jobs left for us for us poor poor done by white middle-aged men (laughs) and and look I I am I am an intersectional everything right right I'm about Equality for women, if that's equality for everyone. Equality for black people, if that's equality for everyone. This isn't a statement. I'm not doing this because it's a statement about something or I have something to say for all the women and all the black people and all the mothers and all the... I'm just cush and I want to play Hamlet and that's it. Okay. Yes. Does it make you angry, those kind of reactions? Or does it make you weary or what does it make you? Not anymore. I went through a process of being angry Mm -hmm. for years. Then I was tired for years then I did a whole thing that was um I don't want you to see me as of color and a woman I just want you to see me as an actor can you just see me as an actor and um then that passed and now I just I don't know I'm very I think people are processing and they're entitled to their their processing of stuff and when people get defensive it's always much more about their own feelings than about you sure. and what you've done. Um, and that's partly what our job is, right? It's like we're there to, to to make people want to discuss and debate how you tell the story of human beings 
So I'm not kind of not doing my job properly if I'm mm. not doing that. To hold us to wear a mirror up to nature. Yeah. Mm. So I don't, I don't get, no, I don't get defensive or weary anymore. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you always gone to theatre a lot? We were pretty poor growing up, so... But my mum used to make massive efforts to make sure we were always at the Christmas panto. Right. And then whatever summer show was on at, like, the Unicorn or the National, she would always be looking into schemes where she could get cheaper tickets, free tickets. We'd be taken to... If she thought, you know... I look back now and she was always, like, scouring the papers for work theatre workshops and things that were free... Is that because um, your your mum knew you were interested or was she already interested in that world? Was she already looking for... My mum and, and dad are both nurses, but my mum was always, you know, they're both very theatrical Right. Uh, you mean in beings. life? Right. In life, yes. Okay. My, she's from Scunthorpe and he's from Nigeria. Go right. figure. It's so a that's already dramatic. Yeah. That's a very dramatic mix. Um, yeah. yeah, I was dancing from when I was like two or three years old and I don't remember ever wanting to be anything else but an actor. Right. So I guess she did know I was interested. And then, of course, as I got older, I got to five, got to eight, got to ten. She was like, OK, yeah, she's obsessed. So okay. whenever whenever we could, we would go. Um, and you're one of six, but were you the only only kid who was into that? No one took it as seriously as I did. I, I was digging out all my old diaries last week. Oh, yeah. I ke- I've kept diaries since I was like seven. That's brilliant. When I'm reading some of this stuff, I've actually got in there light bulbs around my name and wow. it says Chris Jumbo on Broadway oh. and I'm seven I don't think I even knew where like where it was no, it's just a word but you knew what you knew what the connotations of that I knew word what were. it meant yeah and lo- lots of pictures of limos David lots of limos with lots of windows lots of lots of like um big house and I'll have an ice cream fountain in the house and it was all you know I was on famous and all this stuff yeah. um but also a lot of Writing about being depressed. Mum and Dad don't understand me. At seven. In my Winnie the Pooh diary. And a a lot of like, you know, maybe not knowing what that word really meant. But I was very, I was very emotional. I read a lot of books. I knew words. Right. So I think I was a bit theatrical and emotional and sensitive. Uh And it was all very much like, one day I will get out of here. Wow. Mum and Dad don't understand me. It's clear I was adopted. And one day my parents will come. It was all all of that stuff. I was convinced I did not belong in the family. Of course you were going to be an actor. It was a mistake. The mistake was made at the hospital. You know, what other explanation could there be? 
So were me. you were you were you relatively unhappy then as a child, or was did you just enjoy those moments? No, of I was melodrama? just a drama queen. Right, sure. I was a drama queen. Um, Presumably, in a house with six kids, it's there's a lot going on. I mean, it's quite noisy. You've got to find who you are within that. My parents did their best. They just had us really young, so they were kind of making it up as they went along. They started at like nineteen and just kept popping them out. Right. So it was all very tribal. The jumbo kids are doing this. The jumbo ah, kids are doing that. Right. Come on, jumbos, over here. Line up, jumbos. <laughs> Put your vests on, jumbos. You know, it was all very like tribal group stuff, uh-huh. which is really fun when you're growing up, right? Because yeah. you always have a buddy. If you fall out with one, you can be friends with the other one. And it's really fun growing up, but you, it is difficult to find, find an identity mm. that doesn't just make you part of the group. Sure. Yes, it must be. And I think I was maybe striving and trying to be seen as me. Um, and that's kind of where it came from. Mm. And so what sort of upbringing? You say your parents were, were slightly making it up as they go along. Were, were they strict with you all? Um, my dad was, when we were young, my dad's Nigerian and he was a stay-at-home dad. He stayed at home for 16 years and my okay. mum went to work. Okay. So did he very much make the choice to be the stay-at-home parent? Yeah. Right. Yeah, they made that choice kind of together they were both kind of in nhs work but my mum was on a higher salary and they just that's okay. the decision they made and so my relationship with my dad is more of an emotional one right. and with my mum it's more of a like a I, you know we love each other but it's more of a pragmatic one mm. maybe more traditionally how other people have their mum and dad the other way around mm. my mum's the one you call at the toilet in your new flat that you're sharing with your housemates is blocked right but my dad's the one you call if you feel overwhelmed and you need to cry Right. That's it, because that's, that's still quite uncommon now. And when you were a kid, that must have been quite unique among your peer group, wasn't it? Yeah, there was no stay-at-home dads. In fact, my dad was, I think, lonely to some extent because I remember there being a lot of mother and baby groups and he wasn't allowed in them. Right. Because it's not like it is now where there's so, so many more dads working from home, staying at home. Yeah. And um, it, that would upset him. Because it, that's a lonely life with all those kids not being able to have or every woman you speak to in the playground thinking that you're possibly coming onto them because they don't quite understand why you're there with all these kids. Right. He didn't really have any buddies, you know. So I think that made us more of a crew together. That's interesting. I want, it's interesting when you were talking earlier that, uh, about that sense of wrestling with what masculinity is going forward and what I wonder how that was influenced by growing up with your dad as the uh, do you know what David I have never thought about that till you've just said it right that is really interesting I mean it's definitely affected my choices I mean my husband and my dad are similar but different in that you know my my husband you know works and is an alpha male, but has all the parts of my dad that I think are really valuable and that I like and that I wanted in a father Mm. for my kid. But gosh, no, I'd never thought of that until you've just said it. But yeah, I suppose I've always, I've always known the spectrum of masculinity is way wider than what society has portrayed it to be to us. Because I know the truth. Um, When people say, oh, men just don't do that. Or, oh, no, leave, you know what men are like. I've always found that stuff always really being confusing to me because I don't get that. Right. My dad knows how to cook. He taught me to cook. And, and how have your family responded to your career then? Have they rejoiced in it? Have they been mystified by it? I think a mixture of the two. I don't know if my parents will ever get used to 
the red carpet premiere meeting important people thing. Okay. Not that anybody should have to, but you think after a certain amount of time, I mean, the stories I could tell you about my parent, my parents, my mum taking aside um, Martin Freeman yeah. at the Olivier Awards, just taking him aside and going, Martin, you know my cush. Just like that. That's how she began. Right. The conversation. You know my cush. He, of course, looks completely blank. We don't all know each other, mum. We're all totally different people. <laughs> we live in one big friendly acting house together. Right. We live in one. Yeah, we all yeah. got each other's numbers. She's been nominated. And he said, oh, good. Well, congratulations. You should be so proud of her. And she said, I am. And you know what? Your mum will be too. And then she walked off. And I could just see him looking really puzzled and also... Just, yeah, com- I mean, I bet that's delighted. how they talk to everyone. My dad met Fiona Shaw when I opened Josephine and I at the bush. Opening night, Fiona Shaw came. I was so starstruck. My dad was talking to her in the garden and she was telling him, he's like, what do, wonder, what do you do, Fiona? He said, you know, she's so humble yeah. and no ego. So she was like, you know, I'm an actor too. And he went, oh, wonderful. And he said, and you know, Kusha's proving if you work hard, you know, you keep your head down, it can still happen. It can still happen. And then on top of that, he looked over her shoulder and went, oh, that woman was in Crossroads. And he left. Brilliant. <laughs> Quite right. And she told me that story later and I was like, yeah. So, I mean, look, there's something nice about having parents that are that down to earth. Because yeah, of you know, course, yeah, their heads don't get big, but um, also you got to manage them. There are some places you don't take them out in public. I've learnt from the past, right? You have to know where you can take them and where you can't take them. Yeah, Hugh Jackman probably not. Oh, did you not introduce them to Hugh Jackman? I, I did briefly, but I made it a very moving, very fluid movement. I'm very fluid. They got them come in on a matinee. Right. And then I made a whole route. I planned the route out, what we were going to do. We were going to pass his dressing room on the way out. And I said to him, I'm going to make them pass. And he was like, what do you mean? No, they've got to stay. They've got to talk. We've got to have a drink. And I was like, no, no, we don't. We don't. Because we've got another show tonight and they won't leave. And they'll be asking, you know, it, it, it'll be, this will work. And they came to me and then I just fluidly moved them down the hall to his room. He was lovely to them. Of course. You know, and hugged them and took a picture and so nice. And my mum and they, they both were appropriate. They asked the correct questions. They didn't get his character wrong from the X-Men films, which is like <laughs> what they were going to do. And then we just moved them on and we kept it moving. It was great. Perfect. Right. Manage. I'm their PR, basically. Okay. I've got to keep them moving. You went to the Brit School at 14, didn't you? Did you feel like you were released into this wonderful new world? I mean, at 14, that must have been extraordinary. Do you remember the first time you showed up with people and thought, I found my, I found my tribe? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. These yeah. are my people. Yeah. That's what it was like. Yeah. And the weirdest thing was, like, I'm from South London, so... On my, you know, you had kids coming from all over the country to be at this school. So you had kids of all these different accents, but you also had kids that would never mix. I'm from Lewisham. When would I ever meet a kid that had been to Eton? Mm. Never. And, and you had, I'd never met gay kids. I never met, there were two kids transitioning there when I was going there. Like there was people that I would never have met, but we were all there for the same reason. So we made this bond and we were part of the same tribe and... There was never any trouble for that reason. Right. Had a high level of students who had been either suspended many times or expelled from other schools they'd been at. And when they got to Brit school, nothing was ever wrong with them again. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. And then from there you went to 
drama school to the central school. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And did that continue there? Did it feel like you 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 this was all you'd ever hoped for? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That was a bit of a shock to the system. Right. I just thought it'd be like a grown-up Brit school. I just, I naively believed that drama school was just going to be even better because it was just no, no other subject sure. but acting. Just acting all day, every day. Yeah. Acting. I thought it was going to be brilliant. My um, friend, Nathan Stewart Jarrett, also went to Brit school oh, from yeah. 14 yeah. and we were going together. You know, and it was like, we're off we go. Time to be famous. Like, we were so excited. <laughs> And we got there and were automatically looked down upon for having been at the Brit School anyway. Oh, really? Because I don't think, yeah, I don't think people really understood what it was or how it worked. Okay. And I think we were full of positive energy because that's what Brit School was all about. Looking after each other, loyalty, competitive, but only if it's competitive and helpful for the whole group. It was, you know, a real hippie school. Right. And then suddenly I got thrown into this thing that was like... Some of you will live, but most of you will die. <laughs> Some of you are good, but most of you are shit. And if you are good, we're going to make you realise how shit your good bits are. And you're just going to take it because uh. you're paying us. And, and I was a, hard, just a really hard worker. Mm -hmm. So I threw myself into it and I committed 110% and I worked my ass off. And I just felt like everything was a brick wall. And everything was wrong with me. It was too black. It was too uh, common. My accent was too wrong. But what I wish that somebody had said to me back then was everything that people are teaching you here is a tool that you should definitely learn and understand, but that may not be what works with you. Don't try to be somebody else. Mm. Um, but, you know, I had lots of good experiences too. But no, I think, I don't think it's the way to teach people, especially young people, David. Like I was 17. Well, quite, yes. That, that's what always seems very d dangerous to me, that it, you're doing this to people who are, I think people who want to become actors are often quite vulnerable anyway. Definitely. You're damaging very thin-skinned people and you maybe damage them forever. Yeah. So got, it's, you've got to be careful. It's a long, you know, it's a long time ago. I'm sure it's totally different sure. now. Sure. Yeah, well, interestingly, the, the principal of Central School, Gavin Henderson, recently announced he was stepping down um, amid claims that he'd run a culture of systemic racism at the school. And you, I, I saw you wrote on social media supporting that. Is that something you were aware of at the time? No, when I became aware of that stuff was actually when he himself particularly offered me a fellowship okay. at the school, an alumni fellowship, which was a great honour to be offered. They'd never given it to a woman or to a black person, which even now looking back on it seems ridiculous That's, when you think how old that school is. Yes, quite. And I couldn't accept it because, you know, I talked to a lot of students, I talked to a lot of young actors, and I just heard so many awful stories, too many awful stories for it not to be true about stuff that was going on there. And so I didn't say anything publicly about turning it down, but I just quietly informed the school that I couldn't accept it with what was going on. Mm. You know, the students were complaining, there was a procedure happening. Um, and, you know, to the school's credit, the statement that they've made about the problems that have been there and the problems with him have been very honest and open and they haven't shied away from what's been going on. And I do give them a lot of credit for that. They just flatly said, we've let you down. 
this never should have happened. We're changing our processes. And that's brilliant. Well, they, 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 yeah, as you say, they have vowed to improve and to make things better and to make sure these things don't happen Which again. is a start, right? Yeah, you have to start course, somewhere. Of course, yeah. So post-drama school, how easy was it for you? Did you go straight off into work? Oh, it was so easy, David. I shot you off into the night sky like a star. I, know. I, did, I literally, I had no, I had no time. I had no script, time. script, script. Oh no, David! It couldn't have been more. It's a total opposite. <laughs> I can't. Did you come straight out of school and shoot off? And you did kind of did, didn't you? Oh no, oh no! I, I always managed to work. Which was all, which, to be honest, is the only aspiration at that time I had. I just wanted to... <laughs> I know to, what you well, mean. Because all, because all you get growing up saying, I want to be an actor, going to drama school saying you want to be an actor, is people telling you, you know you'll never work. You know nobody yes. works. You know 95% of actors are unemployed yeah. at any given moment. That statistic they always give yeah. you. Yeah. Or, 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 or everyone you know going, well, it's a lot about luck. So who you know? Exactly. Who you know? Exactly. And got I to did, have a bit of luck. I didn't know luck. anyone, so... <laughs> I'm screwed. Yeah. Uh, no, I uh, well, no, only because I've I've been aware of you from quite young. So I've, to me, it feels like you just that's, shot. That's because I'm very old. Isn't that funny? No, um, I didn't. No, I, I mean, I I managed to join the jobs up pretty right. much. I didn't have a lot of time sitting around thinking what's next. Right. But it was a lot of it was you know touring Scotland in a van and things like that. Love that stuff. No, which, I, listen, um, I was not complaining for a second, but it, it wasn't. Yeah. I, I, I didn't sort of head off into uh, fame and fortune. To L.A.? No, David, we got you a ticket on a plane. It took me a long time to get to L.A., yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I could, yes, I could pay my rent, I suppose, pretty, pretty right. consistently. Was that the case for you? No, no, I think that, like, yeah, the first, uh, the first, and I kind of prepared myself, you know, we, I think we all know the, the, the normal trajectory, if you're going to end up working, is that you're going to do some part-time jobs on the side to keep, paying your bills you're going to hope to get some auditions with your agent you'll get one or two of them and you'll do one or two jobs a year and you'll fit that in and then you know your hope is you're going to build that up the parts will get better Mm. as you learn more and that that will be the way it works and I did the first year of doing that but working many jobs because I didn't have any help or support so I was living in London renting in London so what sort of things were you doing oh everything so I started off like I worked for an agency as a teaching assistant, market research, door-to-door sales for window gla- for glazing. Wow. I worked as a waitress at the Windmill Strip Club. I worked... Nice. Um, just a waitress, though? Just a waitress, okay. but the tips were very good. Um, I got fired, actually, because I tried to make the strippers rise up and demand more money. They Did fired you? me. Yeah. Right. Always an activist, you see. Always an activist. <laughs> On that occasion, wrong time to be an activist. Yeah. <laughs> We're more than tits. We're, yeah, no, no one was interested. So, yeah, I was sat from there. Um, I ran a pancake store at North Cross Road Market in Dulwich because I decided at one point I wanted to be my own boss. So I uh, bought, got myself a market licence from Southwark Council. I did a pancake store and I was doing the pancake store post doing Torchwood and everybody was watching Torchwood that week. It was on television. Wow. And I was serving pancakes on the stall. And people kept coming to the stall and being like, what are you doing here? I'm watching, watching you on telly and watching the telly to get again tonight, catching up. You don't need to be doing this. And I was like, oh, how little you know. Yeah, like, well, we shot that six yes, months ago. The assumption is that all actors earn a fortune all the time, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, my God, everything. This is I, quite I had a list. Little, I had no idea. Just uh, so many things. Was that okay? Were you sort of, 
and you were getting bits of acting work in amongst all this then obviously yeah in, in amongst all of that I was kind of like you know did a job at the Globe and then you know did a little bit of TV but they were all very small hmm. not very creatively rewarding parts but at the beginning you're okay with that you're sure. just happy to to work but then into the second year and into the third year it kind of became apparent that I wasn't moving and so I wasn't learning and and I would sometimes go on to jobs where I would literally think why did she get that part right I could do a better job than that I wasn't even seen for that part I've got one line in this play and not in a kind of you know I'm so much better than just in a kind of why wasn't I seen for that part Mm -hmm. It's interesting because you're you're almost saying that you didn't that, and I was about to say you were just you just had bad luck. But I remember something you said about about luck that I thought was very astute, which was, it's not really a thing. Luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Is that right? Yes. Which I think is an extraordinary way of looking at it. I think that's very interesting. And is that did that occur to you then? Didn't occur to me then. I just, I tried to remain positive and I was always very much like, it's just not my time. It's just not my time. It's just not my time. And when I say my time, I don't mean to go off to LA and be a Hollywood star. Like you, I just wanted to go to Sainsbury's and have a choice of beans. Exactly. You know, I just wanted to get to the end of the month without saying to my landlord again, please, will you let me give you the other hundred in two weeks? Could you please? I've got to choose between, because otherwise I can't get to my night job in bank you know like I just it that became exhausting Mm. living on the on the breadline became exhausting and then watching my friends go off on holiday and you know because they had normal jobs doing things that normal mid people in their mid-20s do and I can't go out to dinner with them on a Friday night because I just can't afford to yeah um so yes I felt like it wasn't my time but then as time went on that started to change into this isn't just bad luck. I'm not. Ver- I'm just not very good. I must not be very good. How bleak did you get? Um, pretty bleak. Yeah, I've, I've talked about this before, and with with um, students and stuff as well, because I think it is important to talk about an actor's mental health. But it it I was I was just crushed between too many sides. There was no relief. There was no relief by having a job where I could like express my creativity. There was no relief from being able to go to dinner or have a nice social life that took the pressure off. It was, I was just working crappy jobs. And I mean, by that, I mean, you know, the waitressing or the this or the that or the that. And then like hold, like desperately being so desperate to land some acting job, any acting job or some demoralising commercial just to kind of go, yes, that means I'm still an actor. That means I've still got a chance. Mm-hmm. That means like, you know, and the balance, there was no balance anymore. I just was miserable, miserable, miserable. Um, moved back home to my parents, moved into their attic, like Mrs. Haversham or something, <laughs> and was super low. I don't think I really, I mean, you know, I was joking saying like, oh yeah, I've written in my diary. I'm so depressed at seven. But like, obviously I wasn't, I just wasn't getting my own way or something. Yeah. But that was when I really was like, oh wow, like I'm low really really low I don't want to talk to anyone I don't want to get out of bed in the morning my life is pointless I am a pointless person and I think that's when you start to think so do I need to be here really would anybody notice if I wasn't here wow so yeah and that was the darkest my darkest point 
And at that point, I thankfully went downstairs and talked to my parents, went to the doctor, talked to people. I was ashamed to talk to people about it. I was embarrassed and ashamed. Right. But I knew that that wasn't, thankfully, I was lucky and knew that that wasn't a normal thought process. And further down the line, um, after being able to get a lot of counselling and different therapists, and I've actually learned a lot about that stuff. And it's interesting to know, that if you're a visual thinker, like a lot of actors are, sometimes when you're really low and you... Sorry, this is very, this is a bit dark. No, sorry. it's no. This um, is. I think it's really important. Sometimes when you're very low, for me, I would picture myself dead, having died. And I talked to a therapist who once said to me, "You know, when you're a visual thinker, the brain is a very smart thing, very smart thing, and it gives you lots of warnings before it will do anything that's really out of character." And sometimes when a brain shows you pictures of something, it's trying to tell you. Warning, warning, we are at the end of our tether. We are exhausted. We're not sleeping. We want it to be peaceful. Okay, so now we're visualising. So it's almost like by imagining it, you can get a bit of peace. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like you're practising it, like you're visualising it, rather than just going and doing it. And so that comforted me a bit because it didn't make me feel as crazy. Yeah. Or, you know... That like, because that's a scary thing when you start to think that way. You're like, "Fuck, am I on the edge? Am I on the edge? Am I about to? Am I out of control?" And you're you're not. But that is the point at which a lot of people don't go and discuss it with somebody because yeah. of the shame and the guilt and not wanting to be a burden and not wanting to be a problem. And but that's the point where people should talk about it. Of course. Yeah. yeah. So what? It was 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 that what helped lift you out of uh, of that dark time or? Well, at that point, I decided uh, when I was kind of slightly back, more back on track mentally, I made a decision because that's what I'm like. I kind of go, OK, this isn't working. Change. Yeah. And I decided that I wasn't going to spend my life being a bitter, twisted, miserable actor who was always at the back going, that could have been me because I've met those two. Yeah. And I thought, you know, what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a teacher. And then my mum was chatting to me and just saying, fine. But I really feel like you should try to do something this summer that's creative so that you feel like you don't finish on a low note. And I'd always written stuff. I'd written skits. I'd written musicals. I'd written like, it's just something that I did. I didn't think of myself as a writer. I just always wrote stuff. And I'd always been obsessed with Josephine Baker and other old movie stars and musical stars. Mum was like, you always say you're going to write that one woman show about Jason Baker and you've never written it and you should write it and put it on at the Broccoli Jack or one of the little pub theatres. Just put it on, put it on. It's going to be good for your mind. Put it on and then you can always look back and go, and that's how I finished acting and it was great. My family came. So I wrote the show that summer and um, put it on in a pub theatre and, yeah, it just exploded. Well done, Mum. Yeah. So that was the purpose of it. But what happened was I never went to start that course. So that my route to good wife, I think, began with me getting so low yeah. in that attic. Yeah. So I could trace the whole route from there to there, which seems so like easy now. But it's, but well, it's, it's never it, it's never a, a, as linear when you're living it, is it? Um, as you say, it's a big success in London. It transfers to New York. Yeah. And that's where the showrunners for the the Good Wife, as it was then, come to see you. Yeah. And they still for you apart straight away, come and be in our show. Well, what happened was Christine Baranski came to see the show 
Okay. And and uh, she was in The Good Wife. Sure. And I was very starstruck and she came and I, I was gushing at her. I love the show, I love the show. And then she left. And then, yeah, they came, Robert and Michelle King, the showrunners. And then, yeah, like offered me a job like next week, the next week. And the, uh, did you know when you were shooting that last season that there was going to be this spin-off, The Good Fight? No, we didn't know. We finished the show. It was all done. They informed me three weeks before I was due to fly back to London and live. We're doing a spin-off. We want you to be in it. We're starting in right. two months. Can you move your life here? So that's what happened. And But you're, you're a fan of New York, so that didn't that side of it you were quite happy yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a no-brainer. Yeah. My poor husband had to kind of quit his job and change his whole life. But apart from that, nothing was, but everything was fine. you did get married in New York, right? <laughs> we did, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was before The Good Fight? Yeah, it's all very confusing. It's so, very confusing. So, I get confused by okay. this bit. So remember Hugh Jackman and my mum and dad? I do remember that, yes. Right, so I was doing a show with Hugh Jackman, which was Jez Butterworth's show, The River. Okay. Sean was flying every two weeks to see me in New York because we only got together... We were only together for three months when I got the show on Broadway. Right. Although you'd known each other longer, right? We'd known each but other longer, but item. not. We hadn't been an item and we weren't like close friends. Yeah. I was friends with his brother. Right. So we got together and it was brilliant, like fireworks. Perfect. Like, this is it. This is the man. I wrote this man in Josephine. Like, I wrote this man in, like, he came. Amazing. Life is perfect. And, um, and then, like, I get this job on Broadway, which is like my. My dream. Sure. And it's with Hugh Jackman. And they're like, okay, off you go. And we just started dating. And at that point I sat him down and I said, look, this is, this is up to you. If you don't want to continue this, I understand. But I'm going to Broadway. You don't, you only get one shot at this. Yeah. And this is my shot. And he was like, all right, I'll come every two weeks and see you. Good for Sean. So he did. And then I guess we got into it. You know, we were, so our relationship was like intense and fast, but in a good way. And then I guess we got towards the end of the year. And although I'm not that kind of person, I'm not a whirlwindy, make silly decisions person, and neither is he. But he proposed to me in Central Park. And I guess it was more about saying, wherever this road goes from here, I'm not going anywhere. I'm committed to this because next it could be Bulgaria, next it could be China, next it could be, but like I'm in this. And that was really more what we were doing. Right. And then we were just like, ah, we're in New York, fuck it, let's get married here. So we got married in the theatre after the matinee. All the audience left, we got married on the stage, Hugh was a witness. Hugh Jackman, nicest man in show business, was the witness at your wedding. Yeah, oh, lovely. yeah. He even, um, he didn't sign it with a pen. What he did was he has a, a Wolverine claw that's got three pens on it that he does these signatures with. And he, no, I'm joking. <laughs> what? I thought, what? Your face! Where is that going? <laughs> oh, no, man. Well, he might. I nearly held on to that all the way through. People do funny things. I people don't want to do, diss the Jackman. Look, imagine how many autographs he has to do. Sure. Yeah, if he could do three make at it, a time. Make it a lot easier. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, we got married there and we had martinis and we walked around, you know, right. Times Square. It was great. But that sort of, the die was cast then for your life being in New York for years to come, as it would turn out. Because then... Maybe, because maybe then one it thing, was. One thing happened and you were, you were stuck there. 
until quite recently. Not yeah, stuck, nuts, but that's, isn't it? that's became where you lived. Yeah. And my son was born there. Well, quite. Yes. Um, so now you're back home. You've left that behind you. Are you are you back home? Is this now? Do you live in London now? Yes, permanent. Hamlet is still on the cards. Yeah, still happening. Are there other classical roles you want to tick off? <sighs> I don't know, David. I thought I'd get through Hamlet. Jesus. Oh, come get on. through that. Can I just get through Hamlet first? Uh, well... All right, I'll let you, I'll let you have that. I suppose there's a bit of a. It, it's potentially it's a bit of a Beecher's Brook, isn't it? So I guess you've yeah. Yeah, you, I mean there's 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 loads. Are you scared there's about loads. that? Are you? I mean, how? I know you've you talked about a, a certain anxiety, but you seem pretty fearless to me. Would you, Do I? Yeah. Do you think you're fearless? Fearless makes it sound like I don't. I'm not aware that there is imminent danger. <laughs> like. Because you, like, you know, like you say fearless, my husband will tell you. I don't mean carefree number though, of, that, would be, that would be careless, wouldn't it? No, yeah, not, I'm not carefree. I'm a fearless control freak. I think that's the way to think of it. But am I fearless? Don't all actors have to be a bit fearless? Yeah, probably. Do you think you're fearless? No, I don't think I'm fearless. I feel like I, 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 I don't think I'm fearless. And then I look back at some of the things I've done and go, God, that was pretty fearless. That was pretty brave, but yeah. But it, it never feels like it at the time. I feel like I'm a sort of walking muddle of anxieties most of the time. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess I am a bit fearless. That's great, But though. that, I don't know, that makes it sound like I, I, I really, really care what people think. Sure. <laughs> I, but I guess, I suppose, I mean, I'm 35 this year, which I don't have a problem with, but I've... I've grown into that. And You've grown into not having a problem with it. I've grown into not having a problem okay. with my age right. as, a, as a girl actor. Right, actor. right, right, right. Because everyone told us we were supposed to. And I think that I've been through an, a few things now that have made me realise that even when you're at the very bottom of fear, you can still come back up. So I guess my fearlessness is about... I'm not afraid of failing. I know it will happen, but I won't, I'm not going to die. I'll just start again. So then it takes the, that bit out of it that makes you afraid. Does that, make sense? Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I think that's a great moral for life. Yeah. I'm full of them, David. Yeah. I'm full of them. Full of it. Kush Jumbo, she's full of it. <laughs> that's my autobiography. <laughs> Full of it. That was nice. Hand on chin. I like the way you just leaned into the microphone to deliver the title as well. It was very, <laughs> it was, it worked very well on audio. <laughs> I forgot no one can see us. <laughs> no oh. Kush, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's been brilliant and uh, we're very glad to have you back in this country. David Tennant does a podcast with is a Something Else and No Mystery production. Produced by Zoe Edwards. Additional production from Harriet Wells, Sarah Camlet, Steve Ackerman and Georgia Tennant. The sound engineer was Josh Gibbs. The executive producer is Chris Skinner.
next time. Oh, Hollywood. I mean, they are just <laughs> cunts, aren't they? Uh, <laughs>